my sick aunt. My life is precisely ordered, minutes marching in stately progression. My Sunday dressing consists of sharply ironed shorts, a collared t-shirt, and reflect-your-face polished loafers. My office desk is organized according to my convenience. Stationery on the right, phone on the left, even if it has to be rewired. My vacations are planned and booked months in advance, exhaustively researched and packed with activity. You get the idea? I don't do impromptu. I don't do discomfort. I don't do inactivity. And yet, early last week, I walked into Chandra's room and asked if I could have the rest of the week off. The shock on her face indicated how out of my usual groove I was. She floundered, said, of course I could, because she knew I wouldn't ask unless it was important. It's just that it was so unexpected from me. I thanked her, acknowledged it was important and left to return to my work, which I simply couldn't do. Because in minutes, every single body in the place was dropping by to ask if I was okay. I was already fed up with it when Chandra herself peeped around the door. Diffidently, most unlike her. After we got the now mandatory, are you okay, I'm fine, out of the way, she spent a few minutes gazing intensely at me, also most unlike her. Finally, she blurted out that she was concerned about me. I raised my customary eyebrow at her, and her relief was instant. She let out a huge breath, blowing papers all over my desk, earning herself the deepest furrowing of my brow. Oh, thank heavens, she cried out, as she grabbed one of my post-its and a red marker and wrote in large caps, He's fine, with three exclamation marks. She swatted me on my head, quite hard, I might add, saying, You had me worried, you big goof. Listen, why don't you push off now? No one's going to let you work today. We all want an explanation, which you're obviously not inclined to provide. Huh? Got work to finish, is it? That sounds about right. She added one more meaningless exclamation mark to the post-it and slapped it on my door on her way out. Fast forward a day and a half, and I am being driven out of Jaisalmer in the first light of dawn. At some point, the city just stops and the desert starts. Astounding! The car slows down and I look around quizzically. In the dusty haze, I see one man, two camels. Veer is very friendly and welcoming. The camels, Mona and Tony, have arrestingly beautiful eyelashes. Impossibly long and thick and curling, big, soft brown eyes. But they've not yet deigned to register my presence. Suddenly, the air is poisoned by a noxious vapor. And I blink and gasp and look around. Veer laughs. I'll get used to it, he says. Camels are windy. Oh dear, downwind of that is not going to be a delight. Now I understand the turban they presented to me when I booked this trip. 
We must set off before it gets too hot, Veer says. Just getting up on the camel's back is an adventure. Scramble up and perch on the seated camel. Then cling on like a limpet as she rocks steeply back and forth as she rises to her feet. Like being on storm-tossed seas. Can I possibly control this beast? Veer, on Tony, assures me that Mona is quite peaceable. It's just been a few minutes. But when I look around, there's sand and the four of us and nothing else as far as the eye can see. Tony lets off a blast of the perfumes of Arabia and I splutter and wrap the tail of the turban around my mouth and nose. Veer chortles heartlessly from his safe position in front. The landscape is sand and more sand. Some dry shrubbery. No Nat Geo-type fascinating snakes or beetles. The endless quiet unsettles me and I attempt a conversation with Veer, but it's not easy. Tony and Veer lead. Mona and I follow in silence. And the only real view I'm getting of Camel is not the most flattering one, you comprehend? With dependable periodicity, the air is rendered sweet by the efforts of Mona and Tony. Yet, soon, I settle into a rhythm. The quiet starts to fill me up. My body sways with Mona's and I sail along on her vast back as she glides over the burning sands on her gigantic shock absorber hooves. The cool of the morning is long gone. Veer calls a halt and I am instantly alert for the rocking horse movement of the dismount. He's a hive of activity. I can barely stand. He sets up a fire to cook on, provides water for a small wash and a drink and lays a sheet in the shadows of Mona and Tony's bodies. I stretch my legs stiffly and watch in awe as he kneads the dough and briskly rolls out the chapatis. He's only 24, but he's been doing this for 10 or 12 years, he says, guiding tourists. He's fascinated by what I do for a living. I'm fascinated by what he does. He talks so roughly about the camels, but his hands and eyes linger on them softly, revealing his love more surely than words. Damned if I can see any reciprocity, though. I flood him with questions. How does he know the way? It all looks the same to me. Has he ever been lost? Sick? He assures me there's help close at hand. I just can't see it. We sleep, we wake, the heat is less cruel. Mona's back looks far less inviting even than this morning, but needs must, so up I go. And we walk and walk and walk and walk in the boundless quiet. The effect is impossible to describe. I'm not thinking profound thoughts or looking through my soul or anything. I'm doing nothing. But deeply, with my whole body and mind and every pore of my being, the rhythmic lope of the desert has entered into me and I feel calm 
and still in my core. When we wind up for the day, I'm physically spent, but spiritually energized. It's a regular campsite, but empty. A rudimentary kitchen, something that passes for a set of loos and a circular dance floor, but not another human. I'm still looking around curiously. For a change, there is something to look at. Unexpectedly, a shiver runs through me. It's cold. When did that happen? The fulminating heat of the day had seemed so relentless that it had never occurred to me that the geography books of my distant schoolroom would prove true and that indeed, nights in the desert would be incredibly cold. I scurry back to my belongings, intercepting a broad grin that Veer makes no pretense of concealing. Darkness descends completely and absolutely. When I turn my back on the camp's lanterns, I look into the limitless black nothingness. Since V rejects all offers of help, I lie down on the dance floor and look up at the night sky. No nothingness there. The sky is aflame with stars. Seems ridiculous to say this, but the sky is full of stars. I mean, full. We've seen images of our galaxy chock-a-block with glittery stuff, but that's an artist's representation or a computer-generated image, right? To my utter disbelief, not right. You can call it the Milky Way as much as you like, but when you see it doing its Milky Way thing, it's very impressive. It is really quite something. The setting is simple. Empty, black, motionless, silent. I don't know when I drift into the emptiness and I don't know for how long or when I come out again or why. I can't find any decent non-smirk-inducing words to describe how I feel, so I'm just not going to. But I can tell you this, it's sensational. I can totally get why our ancient sages were so into their sitting cross-legged in the Himalayas business. How can being alone make you feel so intimately connected? And why would someone as rooted in the daily march of urban existence as myself get such a sense of universal completeness in this barren isolation? It's deeply moving in a way that I can barely comprehend, let alone express. I have no wish to escape it, but its wispy tendrils are already beyond reach of my grasping fingertips. The thread of reality slowly reasserts itself, and the whiff of camel enlivens the night air. I lumber to my feet and drag myself off towards Veer, he was ready a long time ago, he said, but recognizing the signs had not disturbed me. He'd seen it happen a few times before and knew better than to intrude. He seems to know far more about what I've experienced than I do. We start off the next morning in the pre-dawn after a night of absolutely soul-chilling cold. Despite many layers of clothing 
and blankets above and below and the remains of the fire. Sunrise in the desert is magical. But the day is much the same as before. Desert in every direction, nothing else. Sometimes we hear laughter, voices, children playing, even car horns. But we can see nothing. Veer says sounds travel huge distances in the desert. It's eerie. This night is even more isolated than the first. The camels, the two of us and the wreck of a bush. Veer has a tent up and a fire going in what feels like minutes. Thank God I'm in his capable hands. I laze on a blanket and we chat like old friends. The minutiae of our lives are poles apart, but we still find plenty of common ground. The camels play their role in the ongoing saga by grunting and baring their huge yellow teeth. The simple meal tastes delicious. No dal roti sabji ever felt so satisfying. I awaken the next morning to a seemingly insurmountable problem. No camels in sight. Veer doesn't seem bothered at all. When we are fed, packed and ready to leave, he runs off at a steady pace into the nothing and like a magician comes back with two camels. Much more impressive than a rabbit out of a hat, you can take it from me. We've been out two days and two nights and the schedule says he gets me back before lunchtime and I'm damned if I have the slightest notion which direction is out. But Veer, Mona and Tony don't appear to share my doubts. The huge, platter-sized hooves set off across the desert with a confident certainty. Amazingly, all too soon, the road and city skyline shimmer into view. The SUV and the driver await us. And I'm awestruck by the clockwork precision with which this whole business is conducted. I pat Mona and Tony lovingly. But my parting from Veer is much more wrenching. I still don't know what lured me to the desert in such an imperative fashion. And I still can't describe all the impact it had on me. I've experienced it, but I've yet to dissect, evaluate and absorb it. The burning heat and chilling cold, the barren starkness, the merciless openness, the unblinking exposure and the unrelenting emptiness. There's nothing stimulating to draw one's attention and after some time, there's no place to look except inside oneself. Not that I set about to do this in any planned or deliberate manner. In fact, I can't even lay my finger on when exactly it transpired. But it did. The experience has been both unsettling and calming, mystifying and clarifying. Contradictory in every way and yet quite singular in its impact. In the harsh light of day, there was a quiet and a stillness in me that I didn't even know I sought. And in the black vastness of the night, a light shone with blazing certainty 
on the only things that really mattered. In the light of this new clarity, I wonder how these realities could possibly have found shadows to hide in. So I'm back at work. Chandra cracks the whip. The brief mellowness of the week before is gone, leaving not a rack behind. She asks for no explanations, but piles on the pressure. I welcome it, for it provides a brief bulwark against the inevitable barrage of questions. I hug my secret episode within me as a private pleasure to savor and to cherish. Perhaps I will have to invent a sick aunt to explain my absence.